Are daily NPR politics podcast episodes not enough for you? Well, you can follow more of our political coverage on NPR One. It's your go-to app for podcasts and public radio. Get NPR One, O-N-E, in your app store now. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast for Tuesday, October 25th. This is day two in our run of daily episodes right up until the election. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. I'm Sarah McCammon, campaign reporter. And I'm Scott Horsley, White House correspondent. Scott, it's so good to have you here today. For those that can't see, Scott is prepared. He has his papers of charts all along the studio. Spreadsheets. He's ready to school us on Obamacare. He is our resident expert. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Thank you for being here for that. My pleasure. But first, early voting. It is happening right now. Uh, here's Donald Trump last night in Florida talking about it. Early voting in Florida begins today through the 5th. So make sure you get out and vote or this whole thing, you know, the movement that they're all talking about all over the world. It won't be the same, folks. We're not going to be able to do what we wanted to do. Also, Tim Kaine was in Florida yesterday talking about one reason early voting is important to campaigns. You start to see the energy and the excitement around early vote. And we are seeing it here in Florida, and we're seeing it in other states that have it. And that gives you the ability to know how you're doing, and then with each day sort of target your efforts to, to find people who haven't turned out yet. So if you have not early voted yet, I would encourage you to do it. That would be enormously helpful to this effort. Sounds like so, you said that a few I, times. Got a scratchy voice <laughs> Got a little script there, yeah. So, I mean, the candidates talking about it is one reason we're hearing about this issue right now. Right. But also, we're starting to get some early numbers and figures about early voting. Uh, Danielle, you spent a few hours today <laughs> digging through those. What More did you find few, out? Yes. <laughs> Thank um, you for your service. Oh, yeah. All right. So, starting out, just to, to sort of set the stage here, 37 states plus the District of Columbia uh, have some form of early voting. And that can be a couple of things. It can be in-person early voting where you actually physically take yourself into a polling place and vote there like you would on Election Day. Or some states also have mail-in voting. It's not absentee. If you live in the state, they can still mail you a ballot. You fill it out, you mail it back in. So 37 states do some form of that. So like absentee would be if I am voting in Texas, but I'm going to college in, in Arkansas. Right. Whereas mail-in is just, I'm going to mail from my home. Yeah. Some states, like my home state of current home state of Virginia, you have to have a reason to vote absentee. Other places you do not. My right. home state of Colorado, everybody votes by mail. Yeah, that's, that's a new thing now. Huh. Yeah, Colorado is one of three states that has all mail-in voting. Now, you, they will have some polling places if you really prefer to do it in person, but if not, uh, yeah. Save a stamp. Yeah. yeah. So the numbers that I have seen briefly and you've dug into deeper mm-hmm. indicate that early voting is up a bit this year. Yeah. So just to give you the lay of the land here, early voting, it started out being pretty small in 2000, about 16 percent of ballots were early votes. But by the time you got to 2008, it was 34 percent of ballots. And so it's inched up since then. 2012, it was 35 this year, there are some predictions it could get up to 40, may or may not, but it's the curve has slowed a little bit. Okay, but still going up. Yeah, yeah. And it, you've heard this in some states. Some states have really opened up voting laws since 2012. And so you've heard about, you know, some places like, I know you were talking about Texas yeah. seeing a, a jump in early yeah. voting. So yeah. I am from San Antonio and Bear County, that county. Uh, they said that early voting for the first day set a record, beating records that were set in the last two cycles. So my first thought when I saw those numbers was, hey, San Antonio is two-thirds Latino. Does this mean that the black and brown vote is going to be up this year? And if so, who does that help? 
But, I mean, we don't know enough yet, I think, about who was there that first day. Right. So there are a couple things here. First of all, it's very hard to do apples to apples comparisons between now and 2012 because the laws have changed in so many states. And also it's hard to get data for today, October 25th, 2012, compared to today, October 25th, 2016. So there's that. There are a couple of broad things we can say. One is that mail-in voting... By and large, this is broad strokes, tends to favor Republicans more. I've heard that. And that in-person voting tends to favor uh, Democrats more. Yeah. It's just interesting to see how the parties and the campaigns really do spin this, right? Because as you say, Danielle, it's hard to to know what to make of the numbers. But we've heard, we've gotten releases from both the, you know, the GOP national organization and some local state organizations and the Hillary Clinton campaign in the last couple of weeks saying, you know, look at these numbers from, you know, earlier absentee voting from XYZ swing state. This looks great for us. I mean, for example, I got one from the Republican Party of Iowa about a week ago that was headlined, More Bad News for Iowa Democrats. And if you look at the numbers, Democrats were actually leading the uh, absentee ballot requests in every single date that was listed. But the Republicans had picked up steam faster because mm-hmm. they started lower. And, the you know, so the Republicans were spinning this as this is good for us. We're gaining at a faster rate. Right. You know, and, and it's and then, you know, but the Dems do the same thing with their numbers. Absolutely. The yeah. question you always have to ask is, are the are you just providing a convenience for people who otherwise would vote on Election Day anyway, Election Day Tuesday anyway, mm-hmm. or by allowing people to vote early or to vote by mail or vote absentee, are you bringing new people into the process who otherwise might not have voted? Yeah. Right. And so Tamara, who who was covering the Clinton campaign, has said that what she's heard is that the strategy for the Clinton campaign, at least, is to get those new voters to vote early. People, they're right. not entirely confident they're going to get to the polling place on Election Day Tuesday. They that This gives them extra opportunity ahead of time to get them to the polling place, get more people to the polling place. And certainly Republicans think that that does work for Democrats, which is why in some states you've seen Republicans try to limit the number of early voting opportunities. And I mean, what's also I mean, every day that early voting continues, that is several thousand fewer voters uh, who can have their mind changed by either Mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton or Trump. Absolutely right. Although you could see. Scott was talking about the people who, you know, might be low propensity voters. You could see how otherwise if the Clinton campaign or Trump campaign uh, didn't get out there and try to get those low propensity voters in, you can see how only the politics super fans would vote early. Because yeah. in some places, there are a, a lot of steps required to Very vote much. early. I, yeah. Again, like states where, that require a reason, you got to fill out a form, you got to give a reason, you got to go turn it in or mail it in, depending on what the rules are. And a note from your it's mother. Not, yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> I, I love that. That Virginia law just knocked me out. Like, I need what a note law? from my doctor to go, like, vote early, essentially. Really? Like, not, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm being silly. Oh, uh, well, what is the requirement? You need, uh, you need some sort of an excuse. Like and, a parent? Like no. a like one two well like I mean I I can't I'm working out of town on election day is a reason there were all kinds wow. I mean it was a yeah. long list of reasons but you couldn't just say I just want to get this done right early okay the moment we've all been waiting for <laughs> Scott, Scott Horsley dropping some knowledge on us dropping some Obamacare knowledge. Uh, In the last 24 hours, the Department of Health and Human Services announced that premiums are going to rise an average of 22 percent next year. Um, But they also pointed out that subsidies for those premiums will go up, too. But from first glimpse, Scott, this is not good news for Obamacare or for Democrats or for Hillary Clinton and Obama, right? 
it's not great news. You got to remember, this is just the average premiums for the people who are buying health insurance on the Obamacare exchanges. Gotcha. People who get their insurance through Medicare or Medicaid or through their employer, which is the way most Americans get their health coverage, are not affected by this. But for that minority who are buying on the exchanges, yeah, that's a twenty. That's a pretty big uh, spike in rates. Twenty-two percent increase on average across the country. That follows an increase of about seven and a half percent this year, and a even smaller increase last year. So one could say maybe the policies were artificially cheap to begin with and we're just playing catch up and now they'll stabilize. Or maybe this is the beginning of a death spiral where they're just going to get more and more expensive and people are going to be fleeing those markets. Who would have made them artificially cheap? The companies themselves, the government? What's the incentive with that? Insurance companies might have priced uh, very aggressively early on in hopes of gaining market share. Uh, Uh, And what we have seen is that some insurance companies were surprised by the makeup of the pool that they got. The the people who signed up on these exchanges tended to be older and sicker than they were expecting and, and therefore more costly to insure. Some insurance companies lost money as a result. Some insurance companies pulled out of the market. And so we've seen uh, reduced competition going into 2017 in a lot of places around the country. Still, most customers are going to have three or more insurance companies to choose from. But in some whole states, there will be just one insurance company offering policies. So with less competition, there's more room to raise prices. Gotcha. So Donald Trump has spoken about Obamacare and its newest troubles today at an event in Florida. Here's a bit of tape of that. Obamacare is just blowing up. And uh, even the White House, our president, announced uh, 25 or 26 percent. That number is so wrong. That is such a phony number. You're talking about 60, 70, 80 percent in increases, not 25 percent. And I think what he wanted to do, because it was blowing up all over the country. Yeah, and uh, this is something we've been hearing from from Donald Trump, uh, you know, one of his many criticisms of the Obama administration, although I wouldn't say it's at the top of his list of criticisms. They t- he tends to dwell more on foreign policy than domestic or health care policy. Um, but he's been promising that, you know, he'll come up with a much better health system. We don't have a lot of details about what that would look like. I, I have to say, too, this, you know, 22 percent is a pretty big sticker shock for a lot of people. Yes. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump could have just said exactly. it's 22 percent. That's, That's pretty enough. high. He has to say that government members are aren't to be trusted. They're really much higher than that. Now, that is an average, that 22%. And there are certainly states where it's much higher. In uh, Arizona, the premiums are going to more than double next year. But then you've got states like Indiana and Massachusetts where they're actually going down. So the average nationwide is is 22%. Donald Trump could have just cited that. Instead, he tried to maybe gild the lily a little bit. So, Scott, one question I have is that these premiums are going up, but a lot of people on Obamacare are subsidized, right? So how... Uh, do we have a sense of how many people this will or won't affect? Yeah, the, the lion's share of people buying uh, insurance policies on the Obamacare exchanges do qualify for a, a government uh, subsidy, mm-hmm. and that will uh, offset some or, in some cases, all of the premium increase. So it does protect them. Certainly, the federal government says the lion's share of people who go on these exchanges can find a policy that is affordable for, say, under 100 bucks a month. And what they'd really, there's, you're going to see a big push during the open enrollment period that begins in November to attract more young, healthy people to these exchanges, because that's really what it's going to take to make this pencil out for the insurance companies and for everybody else is to attract a, a healthier, younger pool of people who will say, look, it's worth it to me to buy this insurance, to get covered. 
And right now, a lot of young, healthy people are not finding that a valuable proposition. So a couple of tweaks that Hillary Clinton has talked about making and others have talked about making is making the subsidies more generous. So it costs less to buy insurance on these exchanges. Or, uh, and Hillary Clinton's not talking about this, but the other solution that some have offered is make the penalties for not having insurance more onerous. Ah. So both a carrot and stick approach to get more young, healthy people signed up. Mm -hmm. So usually an issue as big as Obamacare would be a big talking point for both parties. The GOP would point out problems in the policy. Dems would point out how many folks have gotten health care because of it. It seems to be getting less discussion this year for a lot of reasons. Why is that? Well, to some degree, there's a, a, some, some fatigue in this. I and mean, we as a country have been arguing about this in, in heated tones for more than six years now. So there's some of that. It is still a policy that Republicans strongly want to get rid of altogether. It's still a policy that a lot of Democrats, I think, want to champion, although they have concerns about how it's actually going to work. It, it's a policy that a lot of healthcare professionals would say, look, we can make some modest tweaks to this and make this work. But unfortunately, it's become such a political football now. It's really kind of tough to have a technocratic description about how to make Obamacare work better because the two teams are so invested in either championing it as the signature legacy project of President Obama or torpedoing it as the albatross around the federal de- federal budget. And Trump has been less than disciplined in talking about issues like these that could help him and his party. Um, He goes off script a lot and ends up sometimes talking about things other than Obamacare. I mean, this has really been an election where overall personality and politics have overshadowed policy to a large degree. And, And part of that is because of Trump's inclination, as you say, not to stay on message. We do have to stress there's a tremendous variation around the country. Just look at swing states, for example. In Pennsylvania, a state that Donald Trump needs to win, the average premium on Obamacare is going up 53% next year. But in Ohio and New Hampshire, 2%. Hmm. In Nevada, 6%. So even within the fairly small stable of swing states, there's a lot of variation in what we're seeing. Is that because of the number of companies in each state's exchanges or other variables? There's a lot of things that go into that part. You know, rural states tend to have uh, higher costs and less competition. Uh, Heavily populated states tend to do a little bit better. Southern states tend to do a little worse because a lot of southern state governors and legislatures have fought against Obamacare and, and that's complicated things. One thing we can certainly say about Obamacare is it has expanded coverage. We have seen the uninsured rate in this country fall to an all-time low of around 9%. We have 20 million more people covered with health insurance than were covered when Obamacare came in. The affordability piece of the Affordable Care Act, though, is still the big question mark. We we did see slower growth in health care costs in the beginning. And again, the question is, to what extent was that sort of artificially depressed, uh, or have we really seen a sustained bending of the health care cost curve? When I think about, like, what kind of issues voters care about and why, issues like national security and terrorism seems like every American thinks about it at least a bit. But Americans that have great health insurance, do they ever really think about Obamacare? Is this an issue that is top of mind in uh, in different ways based on what your personal state of healthcare is. Well, here's an interesting point. Uh, even as these uh, healthcare costs on the Obamacare exchanges are going up, there was a study by the Urban Institute that suggested people who are getting their health insurance on, on the exchanges are still paying less than those of us who get our health insurance through our employer. Really? But because they see it, 
they actually go on a website and see what the cost is. They're more price sensitive than those of us who it's just taken out of our paycheck mm-hmm. and we, it, it's sort of invisible to us. So I would suggest that uh, those of us who get, and uh, we're in the majority, who get our health care through our employer, we ought to be paying more attention to what health health insurance costs than we do. Look at Scott with the sound advice. Thank you. You bet. I learned a lot. I'm actually going to do that. All right. So before the break, let's just mention two things that are going to happen tomorrow, Wednesday. One, Gold Star Father Keezer Khan is going to campaign for Hillary Clinton in Virginia. It's his first time doing that, although we all saw him on the cable news circuit for a while after he spoke at the DNC. Um, Also, Donald Trump is taking a little time off to visit Washington, D.C., where he's going to the official ribbon-cutting ceremony at his new hotel here, the Trump Hotel. This is round two. This is round two because he had another thing. He was there a couple months ago, yep, for, I guess, an unofficial first event, supposedly honoring veterans. Which turned into a birther press conference. Which turned into a birther press conference, which began with him talking up how great the new hotel looked. So uh, tomorrow there will certainly be more cameras at Trump's new hotel in D.C., All right. We'll discuss whatever happens with those events tomorrow because we're going to have another podcast episode for you tomorrow because we care. Time for a quick break. Be right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Wonder Capital, asking what if you could help combat global climate change and make money at the same time? Introducing Wonder Capital, the award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects. You can earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio. Best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't take any fees for investing your money. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com NPR. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. Before we get back to the show, quick plug. Another podcast we think you will love is Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. It is your guide to pop culture. Jesse interviews artists and writers and actors about their work and their lives. Recent guests include the creator of Veep, Hassan Minaj of The Daily Show, and actress Rashida Jones. You can find Bullseye now on the NPR One app and at npr.org podcast. All right. So, we have some news today from the Clinton campaign. They have announced a lineup of concerts beginning October 29th with Jennifer Lopez in Miami, Jay-Z in Cleveland November 4th, Katy Perry in Philly November 5th. This comes after Miley Cyrus campaigned for Hillary on a college campus in Virginia. So, those concerts, they're calling Get Out the Vote performances. And those cities are actually very strategic. They are in some swing states. Swing states, yep. Oh. And I got to point out, Katy Perry also did a concert for Hillary Clinton in Nevada not long ago. And this is such a contentious election that even a Katy Perry concert gets a response from the Trump campaign. (laughs) The local Trump campaign in Nevada sent out a press release that said it was titled Trump Hints Campaign Statement on Katy Perry Visit to Las Vegas. Katy Perry's appearance reminds Nevada voters of the lack of enthusiasm behind Hillary Clinton's campaign, which has not been a firework. (laughs) <laughs> Song reference there, but a dud. I see wow. what they did there. Yeah, I so get it too. you know that's that's 2016. Katy Perry brought us Left Shark. I mean, I don't know oh, if she I'm right. Did. Yeah. Never Super forget. Bowl 2015. So I will say it's there's a stark difference in the level of currently popular star power that the DNC is drawing compared to that of the Republicans. True. That's that that tends to be true though, right? I mean, I guess Donald Trump has campaigned Scott alongside Scott Baio. Yes. What? Scott Baio. Yeah. Uh, Don King of boxing fame. 
he's had a you know he's had a few celebrity guests. Yeah. Kurt Schilling is is a Trump. Uh, Who is that? Support. He's a former pitcher for Red the Red Sox. Sox. Yes. Okay. For the sports ball team. Okay. <laughs> I will say as soon as I heard the announcement that Jay Z was doing that concert, my first follow up question was, well, is Beyonce going to be there? Right, that's what everybody really wants I did to some see. digging to see if she has any tour dates on the 4th of November. Nothing that I could find in a quick Google search, so if she might have the night free, we'll see. All right, mail. We got a question yesterday from Simon in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. He wrote, quote, Hey, NPR Politics, I've been listening to your podcast ever since I got my U.S. citizenship in January this year. Congratulations. And you've been a great source of political news. Yeah, congrats, man. Yeah. He wanted. He goes on, I wanted to ask you about something I heard last week. Apparently, some political commentators think that all the complaints about biased media are just a preparation by Donald Trump to start his own news channel. Do you think that might be true? Thank you very much for all your hard work. Simon. Hey, Simon, thank you for writing to ask. And it's funny you should ask uh, because just last night after we taped the podcast yesterday, Trump's Facebook Live page launched something they're calling Trump Tower Live. We have some tape. All right, welcome into Trump Tower Live. I am Cliff Sims with the Trump campaign. I'm joined by Boris Epstein on my right. I have campaign manager Kellyanne Conway on our left. We're going to each night about 6.30 come to you live right here from the Trump campaign war room. And we're going to lead right into uh, Mr. Trump's rallies, which usually start about 7 p.m. Eastern. This is just an effort by us to reach out to you guys, give you the message straight from the campaign. You don't have to take it through the media filter. And I, all I don't know. Who is going to turn in every night just to hear people talk about politics? I don't know. I mean, maybe Trump's hardcore fans. I wouldn't fans, know. I wouldn't know. It seems like, you know, when I go to Trump rallies, a lot of his hardcore fans seem to have watched him either on TV or online. So if they're already watching online, you know, they might hop over to Facebook. The, his Facebook page is putting out these announcements, letting people know this is coming up. So it's sort of reminding them, um, you know, whether it will hold an audience. Very good question. And I mean, in terms of the critique that Simon points out in the email, Trump has been spending the last several months saying that, most of mass media and news media is corrupt. Logically, it could give someone like him an opening to say, I will have the non-corrupt media in Trump TV or whatever. That said, when he's been asked about it, he has never said he's doing this post-campaign. Well, of course not. So also, all of this is speculation. Um, him beginning Trump TV or whatever uh, is conditioned upon if he loses. He could still win. The election is not over yet. We should be clear. That's right. And I suppose it's not inconceivable that he could carry on with the Trump television network from the Oval Office. Uh, President Obama has been adept at using White House generated media to sort of get around the mainstream media and go directly to voters with his own video feed exactly. and, and radio conversations and so forth. Right. Well, and you have plenty of politicians who have made the jump from being a candidate or a politician into being a some sort of a media oh, yeah. personality. And John Kasich had a radio show at some point, right? Huckabee. Like the, yeah. Howard Dean's on TV. Mm-hmm. Newt Gingrich is on TV. Right. And Mike Pence went the other way from talk radio into politics. Yep. He's got a smooth voice. So it would not be unheard of. All right. Rush Limbaugh on decaf. <laughs> All right, so one more question is actually for Domenico, who is not here today. If you're listening to Domenico, this one's for you. It's a letter from Sam in the UK. That's a great name. <laughs> he writes, quote, the other week... <laughs> I'm just reading this. Don't story. read ahead. Okay. <laughs> the other week you mentioned how pleased you are that princess costumes were no longer so popular, which I was shocked you would bring up as a political podcast. As a Brit, your disdain for our constitutional monarchy is very naughty, <laughs> as we have many excellent role models who were princesses and duchesses, etc. In order to redress the balance, I will be donning my Donald Trump mask for Halloween. 
Love the show and keep up the good work. Sam. <laughs> now, I hold on. We're going to see a lot Ooh, of those. Oh, Danielle put a finger in the air. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, uh, actually, this is where I admit something. I haven't heard this episode yet. Did, did Domenico specifically mention it was the UK his monarchy? He, Not, no, he was just talking about princess He was just talking costumes. about princess in general. Well, there's a difference between being a sparkly fairy princess with a wand and a hat and gender normative colors versus being Kate Middleton for Halloween, which would be... Mm, not much. Which would involve... <laughs> Woo. I'm a fan of Kate Middleton. I love her style. Right? No, she exactly. I have. I she is much less ostentatious than wearing a tiara and carrying a yeah feather bow or whatever little princesses costumes wear. So I would be all for dressing up as Kate Middleton for. What Halloween. are we all going to be for Halloween? I already have my costume picked up. Well, let's hear yours. Ron Elving. Oh, also, I want to be David S. Pumpkin from the SNL skit. Oh, that. Yeah. But the jacket sold out. Yeah, there's going to be too many of them anyway. Yeah. And, um, I, I, and there's I, only one, I, Ron Elvin. And there's no backup dancers for me to wear skeletons. I'll be first. your backup dancer. I don't have a costume. You heard though. it first, America. <laughs> I'm going as a wizard. Nice. I have a wizard hat and a blue cape. I like it. I like yeah. it. Scott? Uh, I'm going as the Affordable Care Act. <laughs> Very scary. Inflated premiums. What does yeah, the costume look like? I don't know. <laughs> and you're yeah, going to be my I, skeleton dancer. I, I really don't have a costume yet. I You know, I took my kids uh, costume shopping weeks ago, and uh, I don't know. I, I got them like superheroes or something boring, but... My favorite memory from from that is my kid, my little one who just loves Halloween is like bigger than Christmas for him. Could not handle the Halloween shop. Like there were like scary ghosts and like this like creepy like you know screeching witch face, and he just like he had to leave. So yeah. I don't know. I didn't get myself a costume. There was no time. Yeah. Also, wigs are mad expensive. Wait, or, did you find a Ron Elving wig? I'm I am finishing up my selection process right now. I'm excited to see that. Yeah, you know Ron Elving has a lot more hair than you do, Sam. We <laughs> <laughs> need to stop this show right now. Stick a fork in us. We are done. We'll be back on Wednesday. Once again, we'll try to get these episodes out by 6.30 Eastern time or so. Check your feed around that time if you want the episode for your evening commute. I think bald is beautiful, Sam. I do, too. I do. I I love you, Sam. I love you, too. Also, do us a favor and leave an iTunes review if you like the show. And as always, keep up with more of our coverage on NPR One and your local public radio station. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Sarah McCammon, campaign reporter. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. And I'm Scott Horsley, White House correspondent. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.